This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. We haven't done one of these in a while. It's it, listen on doing these on a weekly basis. Sometimes it's sometimes hard to get a get a topic together, get every get the crew rounded up. But we rounded up a few of the OGs and also some new blood to join us today. So I'm very excited for today's panel. I'll tell you about the topic in a second. Let me introduce everybody on here. We got Kevin Shea at the Good Prick on Twitter. What my favorite Good Prick on Twitter? What's up, Kevin? Hey, how are you, Bobby? Oh, good to see you. Good to see I you, sir. Your birthday. I love your birthday uh, amusements. <clears throat> oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Just please make sure to always save that picture and just put it out there every November sixteenth. Uh, I do appreciate Alrighty. that. Uh, we also joining us newbie uh, to the panel is Josh Young from Bison Interest. Me and Josh just did an awesome interview on Planet Microcap. I'm so stoked that he's joining us on here today. Josh, what's up, man? Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. Good to have you, dude. And and fellow OG, been on uh, I'd say more than fifty percent of all these panels here. We got Gary Reby. Oh, that can't uh, be. I, I think so. No. No, I only try to say yes to one out of every five. <laughs> well we've done uh all right i'm not even gonna try and do quick math but i'm just gonna say okay so at least 25 percent. no 20 percent. 20 percent because one in every five you, you twist my arm into one, that, one or two additional oh, okay well there we go well listen i i, I want to get into our topic because I, I think this could be a pretty fun one today you know it, we were just about at the tail end of earnings season it's been a very interesting uh, few weeks to say the least uh, we've gotten every excuse in the book um, that's not to say everybody had bad earnings but like for those who did we've gotten every excuse in the book and uh, I figure let's let's take some time to talk about it so you know to start us off I, who wants to start off to give their their overall macro take on this uh, interesting Q3 2021 earnings season. Gary, John, I got Kevin shaking his head. Normally, I would just got to ask you a question. Is anybody actually doing work anymore? I mean, like, <laughs> the, the way these companies behave when they report earnings, it suggests to me that nobody's doing any work. Like, it, it's, the, I don't know if, they're, if it's because so much of the market has now moved to a more uh, cap-weighted index approach and, you know, like, the earnings are just all the more surprising because there's fewer people doing good work or something else entirely. But some of the reactions that you see to these things are just, it, it strikes me that, that, that fewer and fewer people are doing real work these days. For, for, Wait, for us to have these Gary, kinds of reactions. I got to ask, so what does that mean by doing real work? When you see, you know, real companies move 30% on earnings, you know, it's like, Wait a second. Was anybody doing any work in the lead up to earnings, or 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 what? Like, how how could it be this wrong? And um, I, it's, it just strikes me that um, I've been seeing more and more extreme reactions in both directions on earnings. At least it, it seems like it's been in, it's been increasing as far as I can tell. Rather than um, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have noticed the same thing, but it's it's. Um, it's been um, it's been interesting all year. I, I would say that the reactions to and around earnings have just been more more extreme than I've noticed uh, historically. And I've been I've been doing this for Gary, uh, fifteen years now. So share, share price share price movement post earnings is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I, that, I mean, I don't know if you guys are noticing the same thing, but that's sort of something. As I look down my list, it's like, you know, is anybody who's doing work here? Like, if this is what the reactions are. That's, that's like the natural, uh, that's the natural reaction to the move towards kind of passive allocations, right? Because as, uh, as you end up with more money in index funds and ETFs, you're going to have less money that's controlled by active managers. So um, even if the same number of people were doing work, which, you know, there's maybe fewer or more depending, uh, you, you'd end up seeing this sort of thing, right? Where uh, yeah. 
where there's just less money being a smaller percentage of the markets being controlled by people that are doing work and trying to predict earnings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Kevin, from a technical perspective, I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you think? I mean, you've been seeing some of these movements happen on a daily basis. Yeah. I, I, I actually enjoy looking at the earnings post earnings <clears throat> relative to share price and movement. And, you know, for a long time, I've almost always avoided I'm, I'm, more, I'm not a very long-term investor in some of these things, but uh, but for a short-term views, what happens is that you get these extreme cases in which you get a, bina a very binary um, reaction. And, and it's not necessarily if you have good a good earnings report that you get a price increase. I mean, it's sell the news. So in many, many cases, what I've been seeing is, you know, many, many of these stocks post earnings is that the that the share price movement isn't related to what the news has been, good or bad. I mean, it's just, just kind of crazy. But that's been but that's been consistent from my observations for a long time. I mean, I won't typically hold over earnings against unless I have something that I'm holding for two, three, four years or something like that. But if I'm holding it for a year for a trade or for any sort of movement, uh, I will not hold through earnings. Yeah. But I mean, is this quarter been a little different? Because I mean, as I kind of half joked about at the beginning here, you know, we're, I mean, 60 Minutes just did that incredible episode, uh, piece on, on the supply chain issues and what's going on with ports. By the way, that, I've been like obsessed with that because it's just, it's pretty incredible to see that, you know, we all talk about how there's been supply chain issues and all that stuff, but to actually very much see it. And I actually, I've been joking with a few people where like I went surfing on Saturday and from my, the spot, like I can, you can see the boats out out you know i mean I, i'm terrible vision now but like i could see the the outlines of the boats far far off you know so i mean do you think this q3 2021 earnings season was a lot of people just saying like well i do want to see the earnings i want to wait for the earnings so there's not really much work until you know we see how these companies actually performed as a result of some of these outside pressures i, I mean anybody have a take on that so am, I totally, I, I, I hope, am i off I, I don't mind if i'm off so there's good news. The good news is that they've decided to solve the port congestion problem by forcing boats, I think I read this, to go 25 miles out instead of 14 miles out. So you won't be seeing them anymore. They've solved the problem. Oh, right. Oh, okay, good. Because that really ruined my vision when I was out there surfing. Like, I can't, you know, yeah. I, I like to see, I like to see, you know, the rest of LA in the background versus, you know, just lined up boats, of course. Right. And obviously this solves supply chain issues by you not seeing them. So yes, you know, it does. if you don't see them, then everything's restocked and everything's fine. Totally fine. It's just going off into the ether. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Josh, in all seriousness, I mean, what, what, do, what do you think? I mean, are we, am, am I, am I off in this sentiment that like maybe most folks were just more so maybe than in previous quarters waiting to see how some of these companies have performed because of some of these, these outside pressures? Yeah, I mean, I guess like I'm really focused on oil and gas and then kind of secondarily seeing kind of what's happening from a supply chain perspective. Um, the big problem that like I've been spending time on related to supply chain is why the oil and gas, particularly oil rig count, isn't a lot higher. And, um, you know, hanging out with various engineers and other like business managers and stuff here in Houston, um, people can't get parts. And I think right now, like right this moment, some of the problem is like with pipe in terms of getting drilling pipe that's used to actually drill wells that you need for rigs. Um, and then a few other kind of components, but like as certain things are solved, other problems show up. So before that, the pipe issue, there were some other logistical issues. There are some people issues too, which can't really be explained by boats from China. Um, so, uh, or, or other sort of supply chain issues. Uh, so I've been focused on that. Um, it does seem like a lot of the supply chain issues aren't any like looser now than they were, let's say a month or two ago, like it hasn't gotten any better. And people are more and more optimistic that it's going to get better, but there's not a lot of evidence of that. So I guess what I saw was oil prices have been pretty high now. Q3 was good. Q4, like year to date for a lot of these companies has been great in terms of realized pricing and their activity levels aren't a lot higher. And so um, yeah, there's capital discipline, but you know, as prices go higher, you can be disciplined, spend a similar percentage of your cash flow, and drill more wells. And you're not even seeing that. And I mean, there's more, but there's not as much more as you'd expect based on the higher cash flow and a lot of that supply chain. So just like on the ground, there are still real issues. And kind of the narrative is, oh, we're moving on, but it feels like that narrative is as much 
pushing the boats out and I was kind of joking, but like they are just like kind of pushing the boats out so you can't see it rather than actually solving the problem. And it's not solved and it doesn't appear to be getting solved anytime soon. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. To what extent, um, you look at this pretty deeply, but like to, to what extent are some of the supply chain issues uh, regulatory in nature, for, for at least as it relates to oil and gas? Are you seeing any problems with that? I know there's a lot of exec order stuff. Um, the Biden administration is pushing through. Is that creating some future supply constraint issues? Yeah, I think I think that's like one of those like very kind of like fifth rail sort of or third rail sort of like uh, things where you know there there are people that are very adamant that the current regulatory environment has no impact on oil prices and no future impact, and there are people that are like, oh, it's all about that, and the answer is somewhere in the middle. So yeah, it's going to be negative for likely supply in the future. I mean, it's similar to like if you look at the 2008 to 2016 period where onerous regulations, like just the quantity of regulations increased, I think by three X or five X or something, um, just purely in terms of number of rules and kind of the federal rule book or whatever. And that had a huge suppressing effect. And it might be the reason why we're still in this kind of like prolonged economic slow recovery instead of having had a good kind of real economic recovery after the 2008 crash and then a crash and then whatever, like we've just kind of had this like slow and steady kind of painful uh, climb up. Um, so no, not really. Uh, nothing specific uh, to point to in the short term. A lot of it's more related to post-COVID kind of demand rebound and kind of um, bad navigation of ports and trucks and other stuff like that. But yeah. there is likely to be an impact in the future. Just there's not a lot to quantify right now. Interesting. Nice. So you don't think yep. you don't you don't think these energy companies are colluding to keep prices high? Like the DOJ would assert. I mean, there's like so many answers to that, but like the simple thing is, look, if these guys were any good at colluding in any way over any time frame, right, their results would look radically different. Like most of these guys have huge net operating losses. Uh, Rockefeller has been spinning in his grave for years at the mismanagement at his former companies, which are now Exxon and Chevron. And those are the good ones versus like the European ones. These guys, they're, they're so far from being capable of colluding. I mean, it's that's like it's it's just indicative of like a lack of understanding. I mean, it really feels like U.S. energy policy right now is similar to like U.S. Southeast Asian foreign policy um, with uh, you know the Johnson administration a number of decades ago. And like when you have when you've cleared the decks and you have like no one there that really seems to understand what's going on, you end up with like policies that might make things worse instead of better um, and without kind of an openness to bringing in new information and to solving stuff. So, uh, I mean, like this is kind of a deviation from like what happened this quarter, but man, like it's it's definitely in the news and it's scary for the long-term energy uh, security and kind of people being able to do what they need to do. Um, you mentioned uh, before we were starting uh, tungsten cubes, and it's just like the funny thing. So this is happening during earnings. So you hear about all these European companies and you see like fertilizer and other stuff where like they're, they're slowing down. And I think it's like there's some zinc uh, refining and some aluminum that's slowing down in Europe. And then you have people like there's a trend to do this massively energy consuming thing where you like gather this like ultra dense metal right make more of it and then ship it to people and like they show it online and i I was just like the the most crazy parallel where you have this energy crisis in europe and you have people like gathering giant quantities of stored energy um through through tungsten cubes so that that's been that was probably the funniest thing to me through this time frame i was impressed with the article where it just said they like the pleasing feeling of holding a cube and when I read that, I was like, all right, well, we're going to go, we're going to get one. 
So I but are you not opening it to show it to us? Is it uh, I actually am out, out of my desk in the other room, but it's, oh. you know, just, um, you know, the, you're taken with the intensity of the density. Yeah. I mean, did you did you feel that sense of that that same feeling when you did finally hold your cube? Uh, I mean, I, I felt something for about ten seconds, and then I was like, <laughs> "I can't believe this is a thing." <laughs> so, um, serious, but serious, serious question on the on the on the uh, energy. Like, I know they want to jawbone oil prices down, but don't they really want them at like a lot higher because it justifies a lot of the the green stuff that they're pushing through? Like, isn't, isn't the hidden agenda here to get it to 150 or 200 bucks to justify, you know, all sorts of other things that maybe wouldn't be economic unless if, if oil was 40 bucks? I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of agendas, right? They want a lot of things simultaneously. And so it's really hard to have $200 oil and like 250 gasoline a gallon in Los Angeles, right? Like yeah. these are very, and air quality rules that make no sense and are not related to air quality, um, but that make gasoline prices higher and like 250 a gallon in gas taxes, right? Like you can't have, you can pick one, you can't have yeah. like all three. And so, I mean, it's just like policy failure. And like, I think just a very, very like transparently ignorant uh, set of policy makers that are like almost intentionally ignorant. You see AOC talking about this stuff and it's like, okay, just like anything she's saying is wrong on this. And like in aggregate, if you want to like know what's happening, just like listen to what she's saying and what her suggestions are and just flip it. And again, not like talking about her in terms of any other policy, but just, I know energy really well. And like, none of this stuff makes any sense. Um, and I think we're seeing it. So my big takeaway from this quarterly uh, thing with oil and gas was like, you had these companies put up great numbers and then guide to even better numbers and guide to capital discipline, guide to paying down debt, buying back stock, paying dividends. And their stock prices in most cases were going down and not up in response, or they went up for like a day and then are, are falling. And it's very like, it's very exciting as a fundamental long-term oriented investor. It's also very frustrating, like doing the work, understanding kind of what these companies are going to generate. One of my companies is like in a big net cash position, their cash pile is building. The biggest pushback is they haven't bought back stock fast enough and their stock price is falling. And it's like, okay, well, you know, they're solving the market, solving their problem for them, but it's crazy. It's fascinating. It's kind of interesting. The uh, I haven't been in much that would be uh, many of the companies I'm involved in are not dependent upon the supply chain. I mean, they're independent in many cases. And one of the companies I was looking at, for example, is a KidVid. They're doing a lot of, uh, they basically own different franchises. And they're not, they're not impacted by it at all. Basically what they're impacted by is, is, the, uh, is the rate at which Children are, are are gaining access to to uh, to video um, now. So what happens is the kids are at home watching more video than they would be if they were in school. And the questions that they're they're kind of looking at is what happens when all the kids start going back to school again? You know, do they end up with a shortage of minutes being viewed by their children? So there's a, there's this other area. I don't think it's supply chain, but it's the it's the movement of people. Uh, that may be different from current practices. Again, it's the idea of um, you know you won't the nurses nurses won't go to go to work if they don't have to if they've been vaccinated and unvaccinated. So now you end up with healthcare related issues in which the healthcare related issues, and I'm experiencing them already as I was saying earlier. The times to the time time to get an appointment is absurd. I mean it's four six nine months. I was telling my wife this morning it feels like socialized medicine. So there are these other impacts that are going on because of, of uh, not necessarily supply chain, but it's more like labor chain uh, along the way as well. So well, I've been seeing a few of these things. Uh, you look at you look at other activities, and you know anything to do with mining, for example. I mean that's a crapshoot anyway. So uh, I, I I haven't been I don't know what's going on there, but I wonder whether or not Josh, if you can look at what's going on with mining. I mean if they can't they can't make enough. If they can't make enough pipe, obviously the, the, the factories aren't running. And I don't know if the factories aren't running because they haven't got enough raw materials coming in. Again, it's, I mean, this whole thing, as you said, it's a big, huge chain. And anybody who slows down during it uh, will, will impact, you know, the ultimately, ultimately the customer. But have you, have you linked what's going on with, uh, with the Houston parts and pipe efforts to anything more 
longer out in the supply chain. I mean, again, if they're if looking for vanadium, for example, or if they're looking for steel, or they're looking for moly, um, is it out in that area that they're that they're falling on their on their faces? Um, before we get to that, it sounded like Bobby probably wants you to say if you own the stock that you just mentioned. I couldn't even hear the name, so maybe I, I couldn't even hear that. it either. <laughs> but didn't say any names. Oh, you didn't oh, say. Wait. I heard kid. I heard kidvid. That's why I was. Just I heard like, kidvid, but I didn't put the name out. Oh, okay, gotcha. All right, all right. Anyway, sorry. Cool. I just Good figured I'd, I'd make sure from a compliance perspective. I, I haven't mentioned any names. Uh, ah. I may not. I don't know. Um, compliance, Josh, so, dude. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's just important, right? You want to like tell people if you Appreciate own something it. and tell them if you're recommending it or not, whatever. Yep. Um, so, uh, so kind of, I think like there's a whole like China supply chain question and China real estate question around steel and kind of that whole supply chain. And then there's kind of a more broader global use question uh, for, you know, electricity, fuel and various other kind of like broader world products. And I think I'd like divide the two. And so met coal, steel, iron ore, um, there's kind of this whole specific supply chain that I think is in question to some extent uh, as the Chinese real estate market uh, implodes, uh, particularly the commercial real estate market and I guess the, the high-rise residential market that Evergrande and this kind of whole set, which I don't own, <laughs> not recommending. Um, but uh, uh, there's this whole set of uh, companies and this whole industry, which is very scary and it's still going on and people aren't talking about it as much, but that like those guys actually were consuming a meaningful portion of the world's steel. And so that whole supply chain is kind of like one aspect. And then there's like, okay, so in Europe or Asia where there's insufficient thermal coal, there's insufficient natural gas, um, and then there's insufficient parts for a lot of other things. So um, I'd imagine the molly and the, the steel and iron ore is in one set and then maybe some other uh, things would be in different sets. And yeah, mining, I think there's issues also from a supply chain perspective. Um, I just don't know the supply demand situations with a number of those different uh, commodities that are being mined. And I would just look to differentiate between the ones related to the Chinese uh, real estate market and then ones that are kind of independent to some extent of that. Interesting. I think what you guys are talking about is is so interesting in the sense that like, there are just so many distortions out there right now in a variety of different ways. And it's really, really hard to orient yourself amidst all the various distortions that are that are out there, not only in supply chain, but like changing habits going one way and then going back another way. What's going to, you know, like all of this sort of stuff. And then on top of it, like who were beneficiaries from the pandemic, who were hurt and how does that unwind itself? And does the the, the, the over the the supply shortages, do they one day turn into uh, supply excesses? And how do you put that into your, into your calculus? Like, it's just, in my view, it's like, there's a lot of distortions and it's never really been harder to sort of ground yourself in what's going on because it's, it's, there's just so much change um, all, all around. And it's sort of like, you know, like a, like a is it a bullwhip? Or like, is, is that the expression? Uh, you know, where it's going, you know, like, like one of those. And I'm making a hand gesture of like a big wave, and um, you know, uh, it seems to me that like what I've noticed, at least in in in, in energy in particular, I, I don't have an expertise in that area, but um, things that were generally beneficiaries of COVID or this year, the, the things that are taking it on the chin the most, and some of those are just not being able to adequately sort of you know forecast the future post COVID, but like. So it's been sort of interesting to me as we look at sort of how the earnings have played out, whatever. It's like there's there's a whole host of companies that all year that have not been able to put out a number that anybody's liked for any reason whatsoever. And you know, it's possible that you know maybe over the next two to three years those those could be good good opportunities. But like for this year, nobody seems to like a damn thing they have to say. And it's even gotten a, a little bit worse. And I can see it right now in like on my screen. You know, I've got a whole lot of red and you know some green, but a whole lot of red and. You know, anything that anybody bought wrong in the last 12 months is just getting, pound, you know, puked out today. And some of that is due to tax reasons and whatnot. And I just, I wonder if we'll start to see as we get into the new year, some of those things sort of re re reverse themselves. Like people are puking these things out and they're just going, they're hiding out in Monopoly tech. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that's the kind of thing that may unwind itself as you get into 2022. 
And so that's all another thing that I'm sort of keeping my eye on and sort of fishing around to see what, uh, you know, sort of try to get it, see if I can get a sense of what's real and what's not. I don't know about you guys. You guys are noticing the same thing, but. No, I think, um, you're, I think of, the use of the word distortions, I mean, uh, <laughs> the distortions are quite appropriate. I think it is a, it's also interesting from the perspective of, of systemic mathematics. How the whole thing works, works, and as you said, it's a wave, and every wave it has a reaction and a reaction. But it's a fascinating discussion because this, these disruptions, I think, are indeed, I think, what we're talking about, um, and the and the outcome of these disruptions is evident in things like supply chain or labor chain or things of that type. And it's very, very difficult because everything is so tied together that when you try to fix one thing, you might even distort the problem even more. Again, yeah. so it's really, it's really quite a, it's really quite interesting. But I think that's a, it's a fundamental characteristic of the upsets that are going on that drive what we see. But if, if, even if the boats are twenty five miles out, you know that's a distortion. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I kind of view it as like I'm trying to. It's, it's like I'm. Uh, you guys remember the thing at the carnival where they try to guess your weight, but like all, all I get is a look at somebody through a funhouse mirror, and it's really, really hard. So. Mm -hmm. It's that, that's kind of how I, I when I'm looking at some of these things these days, that's that's sort of like the mental gymnastics of it. It's, it's kind of it's kind of rough. And, so, um, so one one way I've been thinking about this, I was just looking up uh, this chart I saw that I think is up to date, but I'm not 100 percent sure, which was the five largest stocks in the S&P 500 and the percent um, the percent they represent of the overall market. And so like I try to think of historic frameworks because history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And so one, one way to think about when Gary, like things don't make a lot of sense or seem to be like distorted is to think about, okay, well, like what's actually happening. So like, why is this happening? Like what's changing? And, and yeah, there's narratives around, Hey, like the economy is different and things have kind of flipped in yeah. one direction or the other because of COVID. But there's also like what's happening in the market and in the market, the top five stocks in the S&P apparently are about 25% of the total value of the S&P, including probably one that's uh, on your hat. Um, and so, and you have these things that are just very strange that happen when you have too much capital concentrated in too few companies um, that may or may not be monopolies that may have great future prospects or may have terrible prospects. I mean, there's kind of this like interesting debate, but it almost doesn't matter because this transition, like we talked about earlier from active to passive management means that there's kind of this like snowball effect for size and there's a snowball effect for um for momentum i guess for these largest things and it's like a little bit sucking away the capability of other stocks that should re-rate in either direction as well as the energy of analysts to be able to figure it out and then the capital to be able to re-rate stocks where they should get re-rated well I've, i spent a lot of time thinking about this and i noticed the same thing that you're pointing out there and you know, you talk about history, and I actually think that we we may be in somewhat uncharted waters with this one. And the reason I'll, I'll lay out a couple of different thoughts on the matter. My initial thought on this was that these companies that represent the top five could be systematically overpriced because of the fund flow dynamics. And then I sort of turned that argument on its head, and I thought to myself, well, active managers tend to have position size limits and all of that, all of those sorts of things. And maybe these companies have been systematically undervalued for that reason. And the, the rise of passive is actually making them appropriately valued given their dominance and their, and, their, and their margin profile and so forth. And in the past, these people say, well, there's been big companies in the past. Well, in the past, one of two things has, has happened. Either the standard, you talk about the John Rockefeller and Standard Oil Trust. Well, you know, the government came along and broke that into 15 different companies or whatever they did, right? Like, and the market wasn't constructed in such a way as it is now, where you have a systematic fund flow going into something that's, stru that's structured without a constraint. And so I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I spent a lot of time, I spent some time sort of noodling on that. And what if the right, what if the right weighting for those companies isn't 25% of the index, it's 40. And you say, maybe that's crazy, but if you look at a growth index, the top, the weighting for those in a growth index right now is, is over 40%. And so, and if you look at the top 10 holdings in the value index, it makes up maybe 20% in aggregate. And so like you have an, you have an interesting structure issue because these, these, these indices are unconstrained in, what, in, in their ownership and you have a structural flow issue. 
And it's sort of like, it, it presents an interesting, interesting problem. And, you know, it's possible that at some point in time, you know, some of these companies get broken up into five or six different companies instead of owning, instead of owning five companies that represent the, you know, 25% of the market or 40% of the market, whatever it is at the time, you then own 15 different companies or 20 different companies, whatever they want to, you know, you can make the case that certain companies could be broken up into five or six pieces. Um, but, you know, I might take the opposite side of that because these companies are also frenemies of the state in the, in the sense that like, you know, you hear a lot about ESG investing and I'm sure as an oil and gas guy, you, you, you love talking about that, but like, you know, I don't know, you know, what's the difference between a defense contractor and these companies, which are basically extensions of the DOD and the intelligence agencies, like parse that moral quandary for me. Like, like it, it's really hard to do. And so like, I don't know, it's kind of a rant about like this market structure issue and sort of what's evolving, but I kind of, I kind of wonder if we've seen like the peak of that. People are hiding out there now, but like, tell me, tell me what man, what active manager has 30% of their portfolio in these five companies? They don't like, they generally don't. And so well, the other, the other question I have is, and you talk about active managers and passive managers, whomever the, the other thing that's this, to me, extremely distorted is the valuations that are being given to some of these companies. You know, Rivian, for example, which I do not own, Rivian has no, they, they haven't sold the car yet, okay? Yet they're valued more than Volkswagen. That's the last thing I read. You know, someone like uh, Tesla, who's valued bigger than Ford. You know, it's, it's, I mean, are these valuations legitimate or is this just money chasing ideas or money chasing future potentials or, I mean, it, again, if you're looking at earnings, okay? These, these companies do not have any, well, Tesla does have some, but um, Lucid, Ride, uh, these companies in the EV space, uh, which none I own, um, are all seem, seem, they seem to be overvalued. I mean, again, I won't say that they will because things can get seriously overvalued as we know. But, you know, is that, is that a, going back to the earnings question, is the share prices for these companies historically, you know, in line? I mean, if they're, if they're not in line, I mean, look at, you were saying Tesla is part of the top five. Again, I don't own that either. Um, is it legitimately part of the top five? Should it be? Because still, they're, they're still operating at a massive, massive loss. And they still don't make any more cars than, I don't even know, Mitsubishi, for example. So again, I mean, are we really looking at something that's honest valuations based upon earnings? Or throw the earnings out and just chase these companies because everyone else is? I don't know. I mean, I, I look at it and think like some of the psychology that gets applied to something like crypto could very easily be applied to the S&P 500. Like why is, you know, why is Bitcoin a better store of value than the S&P 500? Why is the fact that these companies have earnings and cash flows somehow a, somehow a detriment to it, you know, a knock on it as a store of value? I, like, I, I don't agree with that psychology. I just think that it could, I, I think that it, it, we need to be as investors prepared for the idea that it could happen. Like mm -hmm. it's it's entirely possible that something like that occurs, and because you can see it being occur, you can see that psychology being applied to some of the company. I don't own any of the companies that you just named there, um, but you can see it being applied to those companies. It's a belief. It's an idea, and you know I don't know that that's a good thing, uh, but I can tell you that it like you 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 sort of need to be prepared psychologically for that for that to to occur, particularly when you have all of this money printing that's going on. So it's. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. Like I, I've, I've, you know, investing is like one of the most humbling things, right? Because you know you have to say I don't know so often. There's a lot, there's tons of things that I don't know, and some days it feels like it's one of the most humiliating endeavors that you could possibly, you know. Um, and and I've had days this year where I felt that way for sure. But um, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't. Why does why does the fact that these companies have earnings and cash flows and and the biggest ones at least shrink their share count? Why, you know, why does, why is that less attractive as a store of value than something like Bitcoin, which again, I don't, I don't own any Bitcoin. I, I've dinked around with the uh, cash app a little bit and that's it. But um, isn't that, isn't that already happening? Like when you look at something where the top five are 25%, and again, I hear you want, Hey, maybe they should be more, or maybe they should be a lot less. And maybe they are companies that are at substantial risk of regulation and where they've maybe flown too close to the sun and have you know some of the negative things that have happened over time to companies that have gotten 
too big and at too high valuations versus historic valuations for companies um, of that kind of comparative size. And maybe what you're describing is what has happened rather than something that's likely to kind of cause a forward re-rate or something. Of, I mean, you, know, you look at like a Tesla, which I don't own, no position, uh, no recommendation, but like also <laughs> no real earnings, right? And like in the business that they make money, which is selling carbon credits, there's rapidly growing competition. Um, and everyone focuses on the cars, which are polluting, right? So they don't really belong in an ESG index because like their stuff is really, really energy intensive and leads to more coal consumption, um, as well as like horrifically negatively environmentally uh, environmental mines that cut down forests and kill all kinds of animals and just do terrible stuff to the planet. Um, so they like violate this kind of like environmental thing. And then all the money they've ever made times 10 is right. Cause like they have all these like losses from their electric car business is from carbon credit sales, which a lot of people are going into because they see that that's a kind of good business or a virtue signaling business or something. So I don't yeah. know, I guess may maybe that's already happened. I don't know that we've seen the, uh, like I, my, my, the, my, my follow-up question then is what's going to change that, you know, what's, what's, so like, if I'm looking at this, what could change this? Well, Maybe standard Poor's imposes position limits on their portfolio or, or on their on their index. Like they, you know, the cubes have some version of that already. I tried to read how how that read. I, I tried to read through to understand what it was, and I quite frankly, I read it and I didn't quite get it. Like, and then I read it again, and I'm like, well, this is confusing as can be. Um, and you know, then I kind of put it down, and I'm like, oh. like, like the question in my mind is like, what is going to actually, what's going to, what's going to change that? And, you know, you're not like, so if you look at it from like, for my business, you know, we have to share obligations to clients. It's like, it becomes harder and harder to make an argument for active management as a fiduciary. Um, and so like, you know, what's, what's going to stem that flow? And I don't know that there's anything right now that's going to stem the flow. And actually it's being encoded into, um, you know, 401k, the way the rules of governing how 401ks are managed and, you know, all, all of this sort of stuff. So like, I, I just don't know. Like, it's it's so it's so challenging to think about. And you know, maybe they come along and bust these companies up and make them fifteen different companies or whatever. You know, you've got you know, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, cloud services and retail and you know, what like you take some of these companies, you bust them into you can theoretically bust them into at least three or four pieces. Uh, you know, you've got uh, you know, several of them could be. Four or five different companies pretty easily. So, you know, I don't, I don't really know what what the answer is, but like, you know, there is an idea that these companies also benefit from what not not like a a normally distributed function, but like a power law. And so, you know, how do you apply power laws to these? Like, it starts to get it starts to really sort of screw with your head pretty quick if you really get get into it. And I think you're overthinking um, it, Gary. What's that? Maybe overthinking it. I could be overthinking it. That's, yeah. that's entirely possible too. But I mean, um, you know, like when you look at it from the complexity perspective, it's really complex. You know, so I, 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 I done the same thing myself years ago. And you get to the point where you, you drive yourself crazy trying to think through the level of complexity that's out there and all the nuances and change and how the whole thing is a systemic uh, integration of different parts and all the parts are operating independently of each other. No, I mean, that's how I get to the conclusion of it is that it's almost damn near, you know, ridiculous to try to do so because there's so many different interests uh, trying yeah. to change the same thing. I mean, but that's that, that's general human nature. Everybody's trying to change everything for their own benefit. Uh, but it's interesting to see that you've gone through that. Well, I mean, it, it has implications for how, you know, we, we structure portfolios, you know, yeah. we've got, I, I mean, I do a bunch of, you know, sort of small micro cap investing on my own, but that's just because I'm interested in that sort of thing. And you know, we've got obligations to clients that we've got to figure out what we're doing with. And if we don't think through the market structure issue, you know, um, I, I think I'm probably alone in, in my peer group for having thought that through. Um, you know, I mean. So, so Gary, what's your, I mean, what's your thesis then moving forward? You know, having, having thought through all this and, and, and looking at the, at, at the market structure as it exists right now. I, mean, I, don't, what, have, I don't have good, I don't have good answers, just questions. I think, yeah. um, I think that it's going to keep going. And so, 
you know, if, if you think it's going to keep going until something structural changes, then what should you do? So maybe the question is, what's the most likely structural change to happen? I think, uh, I think you could see, um, I think that there will be an examination of these index providers and the market power that they hold. I, th I think that will eventually happen. Um, I think that the, um, I think it's possible that they will at some point put position size limits on the index construction. Um, because like from a regulatory perspective, you take something like the cubes, I think they actually, I, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think it's quite likely that the cubes are a non-diversified product. Like, a, like a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's considered, a, it would be considered a concentrated fund. Um, and so as you sort of move into that territory, you know, you have, um, you have issues related to that. And I, I wonder at what threshold do, do people start to think about that? Um, is it 25% like, like Josh is talking about, or is it 40 or 50 um, where people start to think about that? And, uh, you know, the answer doesn't exist inside me, so I don't know. So it's, 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 um, but, you know, I mean, if you take a look at some of these companies and you compare them to other companies that have similar growth profiles, you go, well, maybe the active management position limit rules sort of, you know, have held them down a little bit. You can, you can reach that conclusion if you look at some of these companies, you might, and you might, if you, uh, um, uh, or you alternatively might reach a conclusion that says that um, this flow issue is leaving these systematically overpriced. Now, um, maybe there's one or two of them where you can make that case. Um, but I don't know that we've ever had this problem before because, you know, you take a company, you take two, the two biggest companies in particular, and you say, what, what large U.S. manager has, you know, most of them have position size limits in the, in the four or 5% range. And you have, these are now six to 7% companies. And you have money being taken from these people and given, from, given to these people. And that's the, that's the fundamental dynamic. And there are people out there who said that that doesn't impact price discovery. Well, I mean, it, it's moved them from a free rider to, you know, to a drive in the bus. And so I don't know. I don't know that that's the right reaction. Um, but it's, a, you know, it's important for us to, at least for me, to have some understanding of what's going on. So, so don't you think at a point where, so this is kind of where like I try to find similar periods in time and it's easy, I think, to say that things are unprecedented. And I guess I would note that at points where people say that things are unprecedented, they actually look pretty similar to other points in time where people say that they're unprecedented. And there are points where there's kind of almost universal whatever, right? And so like, you, know, you look at like the year early 2000, where it was unprecedented kind of this move towards technology and kind of the set evaluations and the concentration of market caps and so on, or a similar prior period with kind of the nifty 50, where there was kind of this, uh, again, alleged uh, unprecedented set of things. And there were these factors that were just kind of overwhelming, right? And I would actually argue that for the Nifty 50, there was a, a more overwhelming set of factors than uh, for the current uh, set of, of kind of concentrated companies. And prior to that, in the 20s, there was kind of similar market concentration, value concentration, and narrative concentration. And so I think I think it's like, easy to say, ah, oh, this time is different. And it's also very dangerous and usually wrong. And so- it's usually, yeah, I agree that it's usually dangerous and wrong, but I think we need to identify what is different about this. Because there are things that are different about it. Um, uh, this time may not be different. And, and maybe it's the case that, you know, these companies just become more volatile because it, the when the flows back out, they're more, it's more vicious. And, and that's what's gonna get sold down first. That's the biggest and most likely it could be, could be an issue related to that. But what I'll say that's different about this is, you know, you have this passive rise that's over 50% of the market now, and the fund flows direction there is not slowing down. It's 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 gonna it's it's still going. And you and you're sort of unconstrained in it, the market for this, you know, the market structure on this is now set up in, in an unconstrained manner. And I would say that in the past, um, consumers what's different about these companies rather than the big ones in the past is that consumers hated the big companies in the past. They hated the Standard Oil Trust. They hated Mobile. They hated IBM. Consumers generally love these companies, so it's hard to attack them from a antitrust framework on that basis. 
Um, now there are things that, that they are exposed to, but it's like, there are, so I'm just saying that there are things about this that are different that make me think it's gonna go on longer. And that's, that's, that's my point. That's my point in this. Uh, not, not that um, it's, if you said, I, I don't think it's fundamental, like, I don't think that it's different this time in the sense that like, you know, you're not gonna, they're, 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 none of this cancels out what we know about market and market history. But what I'm saying is that there are things about this that are fundamentally different in the way that it's set up that make me think that it, it, that we're more in the middle of this than we are at the end of it. Yeah, Josh, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, 2000. And of course, that was the whole dot boom, dot bomb uh, activities and all that. And it crashed dramatically. And everybody was running and chasing those names that had literally no revenue. And the um, same thing in short, I mean, I'm not going to try to make this too complex, but in short, the same thing is happening. We already talked about all these EVs. Um, they haven't got any revenue. I mean, they're being massively over, overvalued based upon whatever revenue they have, in my opinion. And do, do, we find, do we find corollaries? I mean, to the point, to, the, to, to, to what's looking like a bubble here driven by everything EV, whether or not it's EV, whether or not it's vehicles, whether or not it's charging stations, whether or not it's batteries, the whole, the whole um, broad market of EV, what EV in, in, in encompasses. Uh, again, as you can go back to sit down and talk about lithium as well. So all these things have been moving dramatically. I mean, can we find a corollary between the dot bomb 2000 timeframe and today leading up to the, to the ultimate, you know, crash of, of uh, 2001 or whatever the heck, 2002. I, I, I think, in, I think in 2000, the market accurately forecasted the influence and the change of what the internet was, but it pulled it all into the present. And it was largely companies at the time that didn't, weren't actually the winners. So like, that's the really hard part about all this is like, are EVs going to be a big deal? Yeah, they, they'll probably, they're going to be a big deal. Is crypto going to be a big deal? Ah, maybe, or like, is, is that going to drive real fundamental change? It could. I don't. I, I mean, there are people that would argue vehemently. Yes, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, a lot of what's what's going on there appears to me to be a solution in search of a problem. But you know, it could. Could it be? Could it be something? Yeah, it could be something. Is a lot of that already being pulled into the present and then some? Like, yeah, it's not. But it's because it's an idea. You know, mm -hmm. idea. You can't apply valuation frameworks to ideas. Like, it, like it, I mean, you can, but people don't. And so, like, that's that's what you're dealing with now. And like. And, and that happening with EVs and crypto and whatever else is a separate issue from the market structure issue that we were talking about. And um, I, I just, it, it, it seems like there are, it seems to me that there are very clear excesses going on. Um, well, these are concurrent excesses, right? But they're, I, I agree with you. I think they're kind of two different things that maybe tend to happen simultaneously. And again, I think the kind of like, this time is different, like when it gets really tempting, uh, to almost kind of give up or almost say, oh, well, like this could just go on forever. Uh, that might be an indication that, hey, maybe things won't keep going for some reason. And then similarly, when there's kind of this concurrent um, rolling bubbles or massive bubbles. So again, like when you look at market structure, so the biggest correlation, I'm looking at this chart again, and part of this chart, the top five in 1965 or something or 28% of the market and that fell. And the right, I think, examples, I think when you use analogies that don't fit, you end up kind of potentially ruining your ability to analyze the situation for things that do fit. So maybe the right analogy to Amazon isn't Standard Oil. Maybe the right analogy is GE in 1965 or ITT or whatever. There was a set of kind of few conglomerates that owned a bunch of stuff that were real, that generated real earnings. Or in 99, 2000, where it was like Microsoft, which is real and has made a ton of money, and Walmart, which was real and made a ton of money. It wasn't in Cisco, which is real and made less money than people thought it would, but made a ton of money. And so there was like the dot-com bubble, but there was also this giant uh, company growth bubble that actually may have consumed, I think, a lot more capital uh, in the 99, 2000 kind of bubble and that burst tremendously. It didn't go down 99 or 100% like most of the dot-coms did, um, but maybe that's a better framework. And then when you look at kind of what that looked like and what the 
the 60s crash, late 60s, early 70s crash looked like. And, and there was a similar thing too, right? REITs were huge. There were these REITs I was reading about that were up like 20,000, 30,000% from, you know, 45 to, um, to 68. And then, you know, in 71, a lot of them were down 90%, 85% or whatever. And so I think, I think if you kind of parallel the right things, instead of kind of paralleling things that don't actually match it, history can help a little more. And again, this time is different, just like every time is different, but maybe it rhymes and maybe this is like a thing to watch for. And I guess I'll just pause it. I think that it's not interest rates that'll do it this time because we're with QE and whatever, we're just suppressing interest rates from a policy perspective. And we've politicized central banks and are politicizing apparently energy policy and other things too that used to just be functional. And I, I would argue that it's inflation this time that does it. And that the people that were disinflationists are continuing to be disinflationists for the same reasons and that the world is a little different now. Um, and that inflation starts getting baked into DCF models in the same way that interest rates get baked in. And if you look at old models and old concepts of valuation, inflation matters a lot. And that these biggest companies are actually structured very poorly for inflation, not very well. I think that, that I would generally agree with that, that take. I, I guess my only pushback on that would be, um, you know, you're having, it, it's possible that um, you have a period of time where the nominal returns are fine, but your real returns are zero because of, because of the amount of money printing that's going on. And so, it may be that this is just the best way to preserve value while that's while that while that wealth destruction is is going on, and so it's hard. I, I think it's hard to say. I think it's I think it's, what's clear to me is I don't really want to be a lender. I want to be a borrower, and um, you know, and that's that's really it. I mean, as you, as I move outside of that, it's sort of like I don't know. All bets kind of seem to be off. I don't know. I know. Does that sound crazy? I want to know energy because it's less than 3% of the S&P. And to the extent that there is a snowball effect from passive, and if they don't change the rules at all, and if it just kind of like the passive mechanism repri uh, reprices things, um, if there is inflation and um, you know if there is kind of continued interest rate suppression um, and underinvestment and supply chain issues or whatever other things, depletion of reserves, all kinds of other issues on oil and natural gas that are really kind of pushing prices higher structurally um, or from like a super cycle perspective or whatever, um, then I want to own the thing that's likely to kind of take share from a passive perspective. And once it starts taking share, that sort of snowball effect can rip the thing higher rapidly and, um, you know, where you could see a percentage gain um, and not own the thing that would kind of is on the other end of that, where you have, you know, Amazon supposedly ESG, but like every time you look out your window, you see an Amazon truck <laughs> and they're, they're not, uh, they're not driving on like ESG fairy dust, right? They're, you know, consumers of these things that supposedly are so evil and destroying the planet. And yeah, they buy like carbon offsets, whatever that means. Uh, but generally, if you can observe their real-world uh, impact, and you're not observing, that kind, uh, of, that, that kind of strikes me as when when like wealthy people would uh, pay would would pay people to go to war for them, you know, like take my draft seat. Yeah, yeah, or or the Protestant Reformation, right? Which which kicked off when from this just obscene uh, payment of wealthy people to be pre-forgiven for sins that they might commit. Um, the indulgences don't work. And it's, I mean, I think that it's, it's kind it's, of like it's, an it's, it's 100% margin business, though. You should, you should love it. <laughs> I'm teasing. Nearly 100%. Hey, it's, the, it's Tesla's uh, main profit center. So, you know. So, so Josh, in the, in the early part of this conversation, there was a, there was a question that went in about where is oil going? $100, $200, I think was thrown out by uh, Gary. Uh, so, what's your prognostication? or what's going to go on in the oil and gas business? This is Josh's favorite question, by the way. Oh, well, it should be. <laughs> so, so we already have an answer for- but Take European, all the politics out. Yeah, right. We already have an answer for European and Asian natural gas right now, which is right now, uh, the last I checked, so I guess yesterday, um, the last I checked, the price per barrel equivalent for natural gas in- uh, Amsterdam, a TTF price, as well as in Asia, was about $200 a barrel of oil equivalent. 
Um, and we're not at the end of the oil and gas cycle. This is just like there is a specific supply constraint right now, and there's potentially a cold winter along with Russia kind of doing some funky stuff. And so um, that probably isn't the peak. And I heard actually a really smart uh, friend who uh, runs a Bitcoin fund and um, a while ago, and I heard him talking about kind of how he sees things happen with Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is kind of this microcosm of like other cyclical industries. I don't know if I agree with any of that, but he did point out that in cyclical businesses, um, you, you can find like that you're getting closer to the top of a cycle when you are well in excess. There's some rule where it's basically you end up at peaks, you end up at two times or so the on an inflation adjusted basis prior peak prices. And if you look at oil, actually, it kind of maps pretty well. If you look at gold, it kind of maps pretty well. And so for, for oil on an inflation adjusted basis in $2,008, you'd have oil at kind of 300 or so uh, a barrel. Uh, using that rule. And there's lots of different ways to kind of triangulate to that and try to figure out, hey, is oil going to 100? Is it going to 200? Is it going wherever? But like, when you think about how hard it is from an energy perspective to get incremental barrels out beyond kind of what we currently think we need and beyond kind of what we've currently identified, I mean, it's tremendously expensive. It takes a very long amount of time and producers need to get incentivized to produce. And currently they're being incentivized to not produce. So you need, I think, a paradigm shift. And that shift didn't happen at 80. It wasn't like there were a bunch of rigs that got contracted at 80. And it doesn't appear to be happening as some people are forecasting 100. So I think you might need kind of a just complete price shift. So I don't know. I mean, like maybe my friend's method is like the right way to go. Um, but I think, I think it's just for me, it's less about being like precisely wrong and more about being directionally correct. And so uh, I think I think it needs to be a lot higher and higher oil ironically feeds on itself because oil discovery and development is very oil intensive. And generally there's this whole supply chain associated with it, which is very kind of like real material intensive. And we saw this in the seventies and eighties where you had kind of this feedback effect where you had much higher prices for a lot of things. And those real prices, I think this might be the answer to some extent for Amazon and Google and Microsoft and Facebook, or whatever, those real prices flow through to other businesses and deprive people of the money that they would have spent on advertising to, I mean, like Facebook's revenue, a lot of it's like driven by like selling crappy products that don't work, that people get high ROI by running their ad dollars on. You see it on Instagram or on whatever, um, and you know, Amazon, similar sort of thing. Uh, and these things are very energy intensive and also require other things that could go up a lot in value. So I guess that's a long answer to the question, but a lot higher for those reasons. So you'll take a look at the forward curve and take the over? <laughs> yeah, by a lot. Uh, but but I still prefer, uh, I have a good friend who, who has this giant options trade on oil out a few years and, you know, I, I get it. I see why one would do that, but I actually think that the producers do better. Uh, they can compound value buyback the, the, the big integrated ones that don't have to tap the market, they got cash? No, I actually don't like the big integrated ones, mostly because they have been captured by the managers of index funds um, who have decided that the world needs less oil. Um, and I think there's actually potentially some liability there where like if you're the head of XYZ giant financial institution and you change the rules and start voting ETF shares um, it, to change the uh, business and there's like some way to measure how much value is lost based on your change in practice and starting voting shares that it's not obvious that you really should be voting even if you technically have the right to, uh, maybe yeah. you're liable for losses. And I mean, that could be like basically yes. the... Proxy voting is definitely one of those things that is getting a lot of uh, a lot of scrutiny as these indices gain power. Yeah, exactly. So, so maybe that's kind of one of the places. But yeah, I, I actually don't think integrateds do particularly well. And uh, I uh, have a, a following in Canada. Oddly, I guess I was like CEO or chairman of a company up there for a little bit and sold it. And so I don't know. Uh, but uh, there's a whole bunch of people that really dislike me because I don't love Suncor, which is up there. I don't own the stock. I'm not recommending it. I'm not sure it. I just like they're kind of the Canadian equivalent to like, uh, you know, a BP or whatever, which I also don't own um, because they, um, you know, they are investing a lot of their cash flow into businesses and projects that are virtue signaling and low return.
so if you're if you're avoiding the capture of the bigger ones that the index funds like the european ones must be like a hard pass then right Mostly, yeah. I mean, I think like there probably is some valuation where these things get so compelling um, that, you know, you go buy some anyway, kind of like hold your nose. I mean, like Shell moving away from the Netherlands, I think they're moving to the UK, which yeah, kind of was like a strange decision. Like, why don't they just move to Dubai, right? Didn't like Halliburton do that a while ago or something to redomicile? Don't, like, don't own Shell or Halliburton. I have no idea, but I saw that article. It was interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's also like, okay, just like give up on all of this and move somewhere where like you won't like have to virtue signal in order to, you know, uh, have your kids go to the right schools as a CEO or a board member or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, may maybe, I mean, I don't know, at some valuation, these things probably are interesting, but. Um, I mean, if you're taking the over on the forward curve, I was looking at a mate, uh, uh, sort of a, a matrix that JP Morgan put together on the strip and like what the cash flow profiles are on these things. And it's ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's part of why I like the producers instead of the options trade, because there's just so, and, and some of the service companies too, right? I can think that companies underinvest relative to historicals, and I can still buy some services companies at a huge discount to replacement cost, and they're likely to over-earn through this cycle, partly because they're doing the same thing the producers are doing, which is under-investing in their businesses. And so if you have fewer drilling rigs, drilling rig companies can actually make a lot of money. And if you have fewer pressure pumpers, then they can make money. I, th I thought about that. But then if, you, if you're stacking rigs and you, you've got them stacked for four or five years at a time, don't you, are you essentially at a point where you basically just need to go get a new rig? I mean, yeah, but like how, how much money do you need to be at the guarantee in a contract for you to actually go make that investment? Go get that and rig. Like, people and they're forget. not willing to do it. So it's going to be artificially sort of constrained for that period of time. Yeah, people forget. They're like, oh, well, the producers are capital constrained, but the service companies are going to go do this. And it's like, and the service companies are like, oh, well, we're capital constrained, but the producers, and the answer is they're all capital I, constrained. I, I think the providers of capital to this industry have collective PTSD. I think it's going to be, <laughs> be I mean, pretty rough. A lot of them have decided to go invest in like these like SPACs and create SPACs and create like interesting kind of companies that have dubious economic value or dubious societal value, but like are very kind of uh, virtue signaling. And so, you know, I, I don't know how you get back from that, right? Like if you're a traditional provider of capital to oil and gas businesses and you go set up a billion dollar fund and invest in EVs and other stuff, and maybe you even do well on one or two of those, but like, can you really credibly come back into the oil and gas industry and provide capital? And like, who do your who are your counterparts in that? Who are your funders of that? And like, it just, I, it feels like things kind of broke to some extent um, late last year, even early this year um, with some people that were really kind of like very ingrained in the industry. You kind of uh, left it at a very weird time where things were getting better, um, but where there was just like fast money to be made in some of this other stuff. Huh, that's fascinating. Sorry, Bobby, I hijacked your thing and turned it into me interviewing Josh about oil and gas. I, hey, man, you know me, how I run these things. You know, if, we, if we're getting on something interesting, let's just let it run. Because I, I, I'm i sitting here silent because I'm wanting to hear everything that you guys have to say about this. So, um, but, you know, we are getting, you know, we, we don't want to, I don't want to take up too much more of you guys' time. I know you guys are all busy today. So, you know, I think, uh, I think let's close it up a little bit because this is, look, Josh is going to come back on. We're all going to come back on. I'm sure there's going to be more updates going on in energy and everything like that as we continue to move forward here going into 2022. So let's close it. Let's close it out. Final thoughts. You know, uh, you know, I'll let, I'll let Josh anchor this one for the, for the closing thoughts. So Kevin, your, your closing thoughts first. I'm just going to re listen to this one again, because I want to hear everything that I Josh know. said. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be, I'm going to edit it. I'm going to listen to like three times just to listen to it. Uh, so, and, uh, Kevin, where can everybody go and follow you on Twitter? We got to get your follower count back up and the next, our next threshold is 2000 for you. 2000. Yeah. We need you to 2000. I thought it was 1000. So I'm at I mean, the inf place. inflation adjusted, of course, but you know, oh, we'll get to 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I'm he's at, at the, the he's, he's at the good prick on, on Twitter. Everybody just, oh, no, that's about everything. That's the only place I am. <laughs> Other good. than that, I'm, I'm, I'm right here. I'm not leaving. Very good. All right, Garrett. Uh, let's see. Closing thoughts. Oh, I enjoyed this. This was fun. Uh, thanks for putting up my, with my questions. Uh, I'm a uh, energy tourist, and uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's hope that uh, let's figure out what to do with history rhymes this time. 
Hey, do we all, I think we're all energy tourists as long as Josh is, uh, is, is fu fully planted on the Island there, or maybe it might not be, it's probably a big Island at this point, you know, but, uh, as long as, as long as Josh is doing the work for us, I, I think, I think we're all good. Way, love it. Yeah. I love it too. <laughs> Josh, close this out, man. Sure. So I actually got to 10,000 followers recently and made a bison chili. So it was a little cannibalistic, but also it was pretty fun. <laughs> invited some people. Uh, my friends showed up. Twitter people didn't show up. I was kind of surprised. Figured, hey, free chili. Like, why not? Um, but You're still, uh, if you were an LA local, I would have been there. You know that. Yeah. But, but the nice thing about being in Houston is a friend hunted the buffalo and um, it was wild, uh, wild bison, um, grass fed, you know, actually it was like amazing. So, wow. so it was pretty, pretty cool. Um, unlike this earning season, which was a unmitigated disaster and, uh, <laughs> you know, more, more volatility. I think Gary had a great point. I think it's like what I would focus on and expect maybe going forward when you have suppressed volatility, um, from low artificial low interest rates, when you have lots of things going on, you end up like the more you push things down, the more they're gonna be explosive in either direction. And so I think I expect more of that to come. Perfect. And Josh, one last thing before I let you go, you posted one photo on Twitter of eating Wagyu beef. How did you cook it? I just, I need to know to make sure that it was, it was you know, there was somebody posted a video right below of like the proper way to cook it. And I'm not gonna lie, it took the 15 minutes to watch it because it was very mesmerizing. So how how do how do we how did you cook it? Okay, so so what they posted was Kobe beef, and I think or like something along the lines <laughs> of Kobe, which is from Japan. So right. that there's a specific traditional Japanese preparation method. Um, this wagyu, which was Texas raised um, from a ranch near Houston. Um, this was just, it was uh, reverse seared. So actually sous vide it and then seared it and pulled it off uh, somewhere on the border of rare and medium rare. And people nice. are like, oh, it looks torched, but it's like, you know, you look at, you want it to be seared on the outside and rare uh, the rest of the way through. So it was perfect. Not a Pittsburgh black and blue. Sous vide all the way. Do sous vide, sous vide, sous vide, sous vide. Yeah, I love it. And hey, Josh, hey Josh, by the way, where can people go and find uh, go and follow you on, on uh, social media, by the way? Yeah, they can find me on, on Twitter, uh, Josh underscore young underscore one uh, and uh, at bisoninterest.com. Very cool. All right, guys, this was great. Thank you so much for doing this today. I, I'm excited to, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and bring this back more uh, more consistently. We'll, we'll see time, <laughs> time notwithstanding. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, if I don't if I don't speak to you guys before next week, happy Thanksgiving. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your week. Happy Thanksgiving. See you guys. See you guys.